welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. We just are, are, are so thrilled, actually, today is, a, is not only Father's Day for, for a special day, but um, a, a day where we're concluding the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is crazy. Yeah, if you've been at Awakening for the last year or so, it's been about six to seven months we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to show you this slide that shows you the various different um, sermon series we've gone through that has walked us slowly through a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' greatest teachings, Jesus' greatest hits. This is perhaps the most profound sermon ever given. And we went through all of these different series to try to illuminate our imaginations about what he's teaching us. So we didn't want to just be like, hey, Sermon on the Mount from December until June. You probably would have gotten bored. But instead, we decided to highlight through images and graphics. Our team did a great job. And and to focus in on what is Jesus saying in these particular sections. But it's really cool today as we walk through this final series, which we're calling The Road Less Traveled, we're in the final installment, the end of the sermon. We're finally here. We're at the end. And it makes me think we have to remember, as we, because we've gone so reflectively through it, we've taken time through it, that today, I want to just remind us that we're listening to a sermon. In fact, Jesus is going to conclude his message um, in, in a kind of way that helps us remember what we've been hearing and why he's been telling us all this. If we haven't met yet, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And I, I, when I read the Sermon on the Mount, there's something that resonates with me, on a, on a, obviously on a deep level as a Christian, but also just as a communicator. I, I look at some of what Jesus says, and I think about the nature of sermons. That sermons are kind of strange things, are they not? Like, you're going to listen to me right now probably longer than you'll listen to anyone else this week. <laughs> you know, like, it's this weird thing in our culture. Whether you're Christian or not Christian, there's kind of strange things. They're at the center somewhat of the worship service, and what I mean by that is they're, they're really in the middle of the worship service. I don't think they're the center. I think the center of, of our worship services is worship and, and, and take, partaking in communion. But whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, the other strange thing about sermons is that everybody has an opinion on them. I'm very aware of this as a pastor. Everybody's got an opinion on a sermon. In fact, if this is the only sermon you've ever heard, if this is your first time in church and you're going to hear this sermon for the first time, I guarantee at the end of this you'll have thoughts on it. I remember when I was an undergraduate, I was at Portland State University and we had an, our university had an exchange program with um, Japan. We had these Japanese exchange students that came over, and I found out actually that some of them were Christians, and I was just asking them, well, what is your impression on Americans, and particularly on, like, people our age and that are Christians? I remember this one girl saying, this stuck in my mind, she's like, Americans really love to share their opinions. (laughs) It's like, huh. You know, the further I've become a pastor, only the more have I experienced this. After you give a sermon, you receive a range of compliments you, and also like criticisms. You receive a range of opinions, both good and bad. I like, you know, the backhanded compliment is something you get sometimes. Like, I remember when I was at a church for a long time. I was at a church up in Oregon for seven years, and it's where I really kind of got to learn how to preach. And I remember this one guy coming up to me towards the end of my time there. He's like, you know, I... I heard you one of the very first times here, and man, you've grown so much. And I'm like, is this a compliment? Like, or are you saying I was bad to start, you know? 
there's always someone uh, who likes to give you an assist kind of at the end, you know? Like, somebody's like, uh, hey, I know you studied for like 10 hours on this message, but have you ever thought about this, you know? Like, or I remember a guy coming up to me one time when I was working in inner city San Francisco. This guy comes up to me, hey, pastor, you know, anytime if you just can't preach or you don't feel like preaching, just call me up. I was like, like, you mean the Sunday? Like, he's like, yeah. I could get up there and do something. I was like, okay. I think it's a little harder than that. I don't want to know what would happen if you just walked up here, you know, and did that. Some of the good responses, though, you know, I, I, I've had people, you know, come up to me and I've come up to other pastors in tears, right? Like crying, like the way that a sermon can move you. Um, I love the exaggerations sometimes we make about sermons, you know. Never in all my years, we'll say, you know, have I heard such a masterpiece, you know. It's like, well... Okay, probably not, you know, like, just relax. The good and bad reactions, but it gets me thinking. Is this the goal of a sermon? Is the goal of a sermon to receive a reaction? Is the goal of a sermon to respond in a particular way and then that's it? I want to actually spoil the end of the Sermon on the Mount first. I want to show you the way that the crowds reacted to Jesus It says this, at the very end of the sermon, there's this passage in Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29. It says this, and when Jesus finished these sayings, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Not as their scribes. You see, a lot of ancient teachers would teach on top of other teachers, they would teach and quote rabbis and quote off of those rabbis and teach off of the former teachers' teachings. But Jesus, he was just speaking his word. He was just sharing out of his mouth the very word of God. And they were astonished. The Greek word there actually means to be amazed as to be practically overwhelmed. These people were struck. They were blown away. They were beside themselves. And yet, if you keep reading, we've been in a gospel reading plan at church here and reading the whole gospels. If you read the crowds that Jesus ministered to are not to be imitated. The crowds are the ones who praise Jesus one minute and crucify him the next. We're in Matthew chapter 7. It's only a handful of chapters later that crowds, quote-unquote, are working up his arrest. They're working up a kind of unjust court in order to crucify him. Here's the thing about our reactions to sermons. They're not bad. They're just incomplete. We need something more than a reaction to sermon. It it seems now, like in America, our opinion about a sermon is more important than our obedience of it. I've told you before, as a pastor, I'm the worst critic of sermons, right? I'm constantly analyzing somebody as they teach. And afterwards, my wife and I, you know, you leave church and you're like, hey, what'd you think of the sermon, you know? Uh, And you kind of rate it, you know? You give it your five-star review like Uber. And I realized how ridiculous that is at some level. Because at some level, the question should not be, what did you think of the sermon? What did you think? The question I've begun asking myself is, what must I do? I don't care at some level what I think about it. My opinion will die with me. My opinion will probably not even last a couple days. I'll probably even forget what I thought about the message in a couple of days. What does it matter? What do you think? Who cares? At some level, what matters is what have we done with the word that we've heard. Because no matter the preacher, whether inarticulate or articulate, at some level, we have to reckon with the fact that we just heard God's word. We just heard something from God. You see, conviction is not the goal. Critique is not the goal. There's something else. 
as a reaction to the sermon. And I think Jesus closes his sermon with how we must respond to this great sermon. The passage we're going to look at today is going to teach us that the sermon is not over, nor is the sermon correctly interpreted until it is practiced in partnership with Jesus himself, the preacher. Let me say it again. The the passage is going to teach us that the sermon isn't over, nor is it correctly interpreted until it is practiced in partnership with Jesus, the preacher. If you've got a Bible, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We need help understanding this final section of the Sermon on the Mount. Will you pray with me? Jesus, our Lord, our great teacher, our King, the resurrected one, we look to you, good God, living God, for your help. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would use your Holy Spirit to communicate to us, to humble us, and to help us today. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen? Amen. In this final passage, I think Jesus actually gives us the cycle of response all of us will always have as we grow as Christians. As we hear God's word, as we hear a sermon, as we hear what God would have us do, you're going to go through these three things endlessly through your life. The best news about Jesus' sermon is that he's giving us something that we cannot do without his help. And he gives us kind of three things, knowing, building, and withstanding. The first, knowing deeply. You see, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This final section is, 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 is really dramatic. That on that day, which is kind of a picture of the day you meet God or the day God meets you, whichever comes first, at that point, at that day, Jesus is going to hear from people who said, didn't we do things for you? And he's going to say, but I never knew you. There was a knowledge. There was a relationship. There was a connection. There was a, a kind of relationship that Jesus was like, you never had with me, which is to say this, that there's a way to do the work of God without him, that there's some way we can have religious observance but it ends in moral behavior and fundamentalism and not in what the christian vision for life is the key lesson is this we must not just live for god but live with him religion is a performance a theatrics where we obey god for him to be our audience and we hope we do well that performance jesus destroys in this passage. He says, you don't just live for me, you live with me, that I have a knowledge. Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? 
This is actually connected to last week's message. Last week I talked about how Jesus says, beware of false prophets, beware of false teachers, people who teach you, who lead you astray. That was last week. If he said, beware of false prophets there, here he's saying, beware of false disciples or of being a false disciple, a false follower, a hypocrite. Beware, Jesus says, those who say that I am Lord, but do not know me. Those are not mine. Before we walk the path of obedience, our first reaction to the sermon has to be a level of repentance. Our first reaction has to be repentance of coming back to God. I sometimes ask myself this question. Sometimes I'll write it in the front of my my Bible. I'll say something like this question. Today, do I have any real affection for God? That's a different question than am I being a good Christian? The question is, do I have any real affection for God? Sometimes it's really hard to love God. But the pathway towards it is repentance. Look at Revelation 2. Jesus is speaking this word. John receives this vision, and Jesus is speaking this word to seven different churches. And one of the churches he says in Revelation 2, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you have had at first, the commitment you, you um, abandoned the deep love and affection and commitment. Look at five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you done at first. Remember and repent. I love that Jesus says this. You've abandoned your first love. Some of you this morning have lost track of God in your life. You've lost track of your understanding and affection of him. Repentance is simply a changing of your mind a reorientation of your mind to go back towards God and start heading home to him. I love what Eugene Peterson says. Repentance is not an emotion, he says. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision. And dare I disagree with Eugene Peterson, I will slightly disagree to say, I think repentance actually often starts as an emotion, but it's important to hear what he says. That's not all repentance is. It is a decision that you were wrong in thinking that you had or could get the strength, education, and training to make it on your own. Repentance is the realization that what God wants from you and what you want from God are going to be achieved by doing, uh, are not going to be achieved by doing the same old things, thinking the same old thoughts. It's a decision. It's a reorientation of the mind. It's the prodigal son who decides to come home. Jesus, this was a part of this foundational message, this word repentance. Before the Sermon on the Mount, he gave another sermon. In Matthew 4, verse 17, he said, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, come back, change your mind. For some of you this morning, you've lost track of God. It's time to repent. The first reaction to the sermon is to repent. Any sermon we hear, any word we hear, particularly this word from Jesus, this whole Sermon on the Mount, the first proper response is to say, God, I'm returning to you. I'm coming back. That's why we have the table set up. That's what communion is. Worship is a form of repentance, of changing our mind, of turning around, of decisively understanding ourselves to be away from God and moving back towards him. The good news is that Jesus gives us this commands, all these commands in the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives them to us and says, you cannot consistently do it over a long period of time without knowing me. Here's the thing, guys, you'll always struggle to obey God without God. Some of you have been trying to perform for him and he's in the audience and you're up here and you're trying to perform your religion to him. 
But God wants you with him in prayer, in worship, right? In community, that we do not work for God, we live with him. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And that's an important thing to understand at the close of this message, is that you will struggle to obey everything in this book if you continue to do it without God's help. You need to know God deeply, but you also need to build wisely. The, the key lesson in building wisely is that we must not just hear God, but obey God. Here's what I mean. In the story, Jesus moves from that image of that day, and he says, I'm going to say to some people, I never knew you. You have to know me deeply. But he's going to move to say this metaphor of two men building houses. And if you listened carefully, there's only one difference between both men. Both men hear the word. Both men build the house. Both men experience storms. The only difference between the two men in the metaphor is that one obeyed. If you notice carefully, they both heard the word of God. They both heard. And Jesus says, the wise man who builds his house on the rock is going to be the one who doesn't just hear my word, doesn't just have an opinion about my word, but practices it. There's a way to hear and not really listen, right? Anyone who's ever dealt with children understands this at a deep level, right? You tell your child or someone you're babysitting, or you tell a young child, hey, do this. And they're like, okay. And you come later, like, clean your room. The guy's like, you got it, dad, Right? And dad comes back in and the house is a wreck, right? The room is a wreck. It's like, did you hear me, right? Are you listening to the words coming out of my mouth, right? Just my dad. Okay, yeah, okay. Um, the, there's a way to hear and not hear. And there's a way to treat God like that. To nod your head along at a sermon. To go, mm, good. To say amen. To take notes. And then to walk out of here and do nothing. Not practice anything. You see, it's interesting. In the Hebrew language, which is the language the Old Testament was written in, did you know there's no word for obey? There's no Hebrew word for obey. And yet, you look all throughout the Old Testament, and the word obey is everywhere. And you're like, wait, what is this word? Well, the word for obey that's translated obey for us is actually the word listen. It's the word shema and the various derivatives of it. The word shema is both the word to listen and to obey. Why? Because the Hebrews understood there is no listening without obedience. You cannot, you're not actually, see the thing is you're not actually listening if you don't put it into practice. You're not actually agreeing with the sermon until you live it out. You're not actually thinking it's a good sermon or thinking it's a good word from the Lord until something changes in your life. People say, that's a life-changing sermon. You know what I used to say to young kids all the time when I was a youth pastor? I would say, guys, life-changing isn't life-changing until you've changed your life. Just got back from a life-changing worship service. That remains to be seen. Amen. Just got back from a life-changing missions trip. Nope. Dude, talk to me in a year. Life-changing isn't life-changing until you've changed your life. The second response to Jesus' sermon is true obedience. It's obeying him. That's why James says this, right? Because in the Greek, there's words for listen and obey and hear and do. And James 1.22, when he's writing in the Greek, he says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only. Be deceiving yourselves. He gives this image of a 
man who looks at himself intently in the mirror and then forgets what he looks like. He says, as foolish as that is, is as foolish as it is to hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and go, good sermon, and walk away and do nothing. <laughs> that's, the, that's the same thing. Here's the deal. We don't need to know more, guys. We don't need to know more. We need to obey what we already know. If you've been at Awakening, I showed you the last six months of our church. I showed you that graphic where all the different sermon series were up, all the different passages of scripture. If you've been here for even half of that or a quarter of that, let me ask you this question. What's different about your life? What have you changed? What has been altered? Right? Even if you've heard one to two sermons, there should be something you could put into practice. The Sermon on the Mount is incredibly tangible. Let me just recap a couple of the messages we've given We talked about practicing righteousness or doing good deeds without any accolades. Have you done that? In the last six months, have you done good things without being noticed and received the blessing from God, quote-unquote, in secret? We talked about giving generously with joy. Have you done that? Right? Have you just, right? Okay, one person basically in this whole church who's our treasurer will know who gives what. Nobody knows, like, I don't know what you give. So one great way you can give generously with, in, in anonymity is to just give to a church. And say, God, I release this to you, right? To be faithful in that, you know? Jesus says when you pray, you go in your room, you shut the door. You don't loft off prayers. You, you start with a private prayer life. Have you done these things? Are these things that you have practiced? Jesus says when someone asks for your coat, you should give them your shirt too, In other words, when someone asked for something, did you give them that and what they didn't ask for over and above? Were you demonstratively generous? Have you done any of these things? See, these are the things that Jesus has called us to obey. Have you fasted? We had a beautiful sermon Ryan gave on fasting in the Sacred Rhythm series. Have you fasted? How have you changed in the last six months? We we have to reckon with this at the end because Jesus is asking us to reckon with it at the end. We've got to look at this and go, have I really changed? Look at this quote from Bonhoeffer, German theologian in the 1940s. Humanly speaking, we could only understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways, right? You could have a ton of different opinions on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus knows only one possibility, simple surrender and obedience, not interpreting it, but obeying it. Listen to this. That is the only way to hear his word. But again, he does not mean that it is to be discussed as an ideal. He really means to get on with it. You and I could debate the Greek. We could talk about cross-references in scripture all day. What have you done? Notice what Bonhoeffer says. The only way to hear this word from Jesus is to put it into practice is to just do it. That's the only way you'll really know. You don't really understand, listen, you don't really understand what Jesus is saying until you practice what Jesus is saying. You just won't get it at some level. You'll argue with me, you'll push back, you'll have cross-references of scripture and try to do intellectual gymnastics around obeying it when you really should just do it. And then come back to me. Look, many Christians I've met they start falling away from a faith they've never practiced. Like some of you are seriously wrestling with doubt right now. Some of you are questioning God's goodness. And the intellectual stuff doesn't make sense to you. You're like, how could a good God, and how could God do, and why did this? And you're falling. 
and you're straying and you're doubting. But could I argue with you to practice the word of God and then start to understand it? That there are some commands in scripture that need no interpretation. There's some commands of scripture that are so plain you can get after it right now. Forgiveness, praying for your enemies, obedience, in other words, guys, it's the final hermeneutic. It's like the final way we interpret scripture is that at some level, I could talk to you about it, you could get in a Bible study about it. Some of you have been in midweek groups, you've been studying the Sermon on the Mount, you've been in our Bible reading plan, you've been reading about it, right? Some of you are nerding out in commentaries, you've gone to school of faith, you've listened to sermon. At some level, you will not understand it until you do it. Have you ever been like unconvinced that what Jesus is saying is good? I, I know I have. So, sometimes I read my Bible and I go, cool, I like that, <laughs> but I don't really know about that. I don't really know. I might disagree here and there. Like I've had to wrestle with Jesus' commands just like you have. Like when I was a young pastor and I was 20, 21, I, I would teach the pray for your enemies passage. I taught that before I really obeyed it. Because I was so young and teaching at such a young age, I hadn't been betrayed yet. And then I was. And then I was again. And then I was by people very close to me. And then I was by my, some of my family. So I taught it. But I can tell you, I was unconvinced it was really a good idea for a little while. Because all of a sudden I had to start praying for these people. But on the other end of that, I was proven wrong. It actually is the most blessed life to learn to pray for the people you hate. Likewise, like any young man, at a young age, I was grown up in Catholic church, I had yet to become a Christian. I was pretty unconvinced that Jesus' sexual ethic was the right one. Most young men are. <laughs> it's a very strict sexual ethic. And it's like, is that really the best way to live? Because it doesn't seem like it. And yet, I practiced purity by faith through my young years, high school, college, trusting Jesus, practicing this. And on the other end, the further I continue to practice this, the further I continue to pray for my enemies, the further I continue to practice Jesus' sexual ethic, the further I am convinced of what it means the more I can understand what the interpretation of these scriptures are. You guys, here's my thing. Jesus, he is in the business of slowly proving you wrong and him right. Consider this morning, as you hear the word of God, that you are not right. That Jesus is smarter than you. That Jesus knows more for you and has more for you. He says in the Gospel of John, I give you these commandments that your joy may be full. That you would fully know Jesus and fully know his joy. You won't get it until you do it. Finally, we need to be able to withstand. We know God deeply. We repent. We build wisely through obedience. But at some level, we need gas in the tank. How do we keep obeying? Because some of you are tired. Some of you have been working and loving God. And the question becomes, how do I continue in obedience? Notice both men in these stories, they both build. Both also experience storms. 
both experience difficulty, and one house stays and another falls. According to this metaphor, actually that Jesus is giving us, actually hearing and doing the word Jesus uh, preached is itself building on a rock. Meaning, there's a kind of peace, stay with me, and security that comes through long-standing obedience called faithfulness in Scripture. John 15.10, Jesus puts it this way. If you keep my commandments, look at this, you will abide in my love. Just hang on that for a second. Abiding is not some spiritual, ethereal place we ascend to through meditation. No. The scriptures teach that if you keep the commandments of Jesus, you will be abiding in the love of Jesus. In other words, abiding equals obeying. It's that simple. You see, because abiding, that word in the Greek, it literally means to be placed upon, to remain, to stay. Ah, you're starting to see, right? It's like building your house on a rock. It's a stability. It's a peace beneath the storm. That as you continue, the third response in Jesus' sermon is to learn to abide. To learn to faithfully walk out the practices and commandments of Jesus and just stay. Because you know, as you obey, I'm abiding in Jesus. When we obey, we build wisely, we abide. The storms are going to rage. But our very obedience leads us to remaining and staying with Jesus. Here's the example. All of us, when we were children, when we were children, our relationship with our parents was increased in trust, love, and security as we obeyed them. Think about it. As you obeyed your parents, if you grew up in a, in, in a home that was secure and safe and their commandments were good and nurturing for you, you would have been raised, as you obey them, the trust, love, and security would continue. Some of us have a different story. I joined that for a season of my life where I was not following things my parents were telling me to do. It wrecked the trust and security of my relationships. Now, here's the important part of this metaphor. It doesn't make you not a son or not a daughter. It doesn't make you not connected to the family of God. You're not unsaved if you stray in disobedience. However, you realize your sonship, you realize your daughtership, so long as you continue in the obedience to Jesus. You see? There's a connection between obedience and love. That actually, as you walk alongside your father and continue to hear his word and obey his word, your security and trust that he is as good as he says he is only increases. And so at some level, the abiding metaphor is found here, but there's still something left here, right? Which is these storms. Because there are times where, like, that metaphor works, right? Like, you're like, yeah, I obey God, and I continue to feel the love and security next to my Father and that relationship that I have. The relational intimacy with God increases. Yes, 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 yes. But also no, right? There are times obedience gives you nothing. There's times where you're obeying for years and you're not seeing any fruit and God feels distant and life is hard. Yes, the storms rage. The storms in our life, they reveal the test of our foundation. This is the good and the bad news of this sermon. Is that at some level, as the storms enter into our lives, as difficulty comes, as we don't receive, the storms, they test us to ask us these questions. 
Do I obey God in order to store up a record to present to him? The other question that surfaces is, do I obey God to store up potential blessings that he's going to give me? These are very introspective and important questions in the life of faith. Why do I obey God? Why do I do the things that I do? Why obey the Sermon on the Mount? Is it to, see, because storms test those two questions. Am I obeying God to store up a record or am I obeying God to store up the blessings? Both will test the foundation of your faith. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian Protestant theologian from Yale. Smart guy. Years ago, he began jogging throughout New Haven, Connecticut, listening to the book of Job. He called it Jogging with Job. Because he was trying to understand this book. This man, lifetime of study, PhDs, deep in the knowledge of the scriptures. And as he was running, he listened to Job, he said, probably 25 or 30 times on his runs in total. And he said, you know, Job is this rare character in scripture because he's both rich and righteous. It's really hard to find those people in scripture. (laughs) They're usually rich and not righteous. But Job was a rich man and a righteous man. And Satan accuses Job of something. Satan comes to God in this Old Testament beautiful book, and Satan tells God, you know, Job only loves you because he's trying to store up this record, and he only loves you because you've blessed him. He's rich, and he's got a family. He loves you only because of what you give him. He doesn't really love you for who you are. This is the accuser, Satan. And Satan says, test Job. Take away that stuff. Take away his record of obedience. Take away your blessings on his life, and he will not obey you. And the beautiful, long journey of Job as he wrestles with friends over what suffering means, is Job gets to the end and has withstood. His house, it seems, through that book, was built on a rock. Job remains. As the storms rage, the house is shaking, but his faith stood firm. And Miroslav Volf concluded with this, what we must learn from Job. To love God, not for what God gives, but to love God for who God is. We either love God for nothing or we don't love God at all. The storms teach us to love God for no reason. When you love God for nothing, paradoxically, strangely, you end up with everything. Why? Because your house is built on a rock. Because when you love God for nothing... All you have is God. And all you realize is that's all you need. You don't need the potential blessings that come from obedience. You don't need the things that are given to you along the way. As the storms rage, you realize all you need is the rock that remains beneath your feet. The foundation we should aspire to as Christians is loving God for who he is, not for what he might give us. I wish I could tell you I've mastered this. I dare anyone in this room to say they have. But maybe this is what life is for. Maybe life is not about the potential blessings. 
and the records of obedience we might have. Maybe life is about a foundation. Maybe life is about Jesus granting us his good word to give us the good news that as we practice the sermon in partnership with him, our life beneath us will remain firm and founded on the rock. It's interesting Jesus chooses this metaphor because the rock throughout scripture is always referred to God. In fact, the psalmists talk about God being their rock and their foundation. And in the New Testament, this strange thing starts to occur in the language of the New Testament. In, in, in Ephesians 2, Paul says actually that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, which is the foundational rock piece. The cornerstone that Jesus Christ is the one who is beneath our feet, that actually he is the one, so long as we continue in faith and love of Jesus and as we obey his commands, we realize we are not building upon nothing, but we're building upon his work on the cross. He was the one who laid the foundation. He was the one who remains. And all of our obedience and all that we do is only to the, reveal to us who is with us this whole time. The book of Job does not answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It doesn't answer that question. The scriptures elude that question, why? Because what happens to bad people, why do bad things happen, is not as important as when bad things happen. What kind of person are you when bad things happen? As we obey the Sermon on the Mountain, as we obey Jesus, the New Testament sees this. Jesus is the rock beneath your feet. The foundation of your faith is not your record of obedience. It is not the record of being blessed by that obedience. The rock beneath your feet is not the Sermon on the Mount, but the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. The one who has come to deliver his word and to live as the word. The one who came and embodied this teaching so much so that it nailed him to a cross. And on that cross, as he died, he satisfied for us a church, a people, and a rock beneath our feet. When you love God for nothing, you realize you have everything because God is the one beneath your feet, which is why we can sing this, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, our rock and our salvation, Jesus, our cornerstone of faith, bring us back to you. Remind us, God, of your goodness today. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room who are struggling. I pray for those who's seen the seas rage, the storms blow through, God, would you show them the rock beneath their feet? Would you teach us to obey your word? God, and would you teach us to obey your word for the sole reason that it's your word? God, we need your help in this. And I know worship is required. And so as we worship and as we take communion, God, I pray that you would train our hearts, renew our minds, and bring us to you, the rock of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.